Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We get an update on Hamilton's core patrol. I'm also chewing on MZO's, the latest home building idea, mortgage broker myths, Canada's Minister of Sport joins the show, and Donald Trump waits for the Supreme Court. We'll tell you more next on the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Back in June, I'll refresh your memory, we had in studio um, Police Chief Frank Bergen, as well as a number of other guests, to Talk about downtown, well, safety issues when it came to shoplifting or panhandling, property damage. A lot of the people who work downtown, especially at night, felt unsafe. And some, certainly some shoppers downtown, I'm sure, felt the same way. So to address those concerns, Hamilton Police instituted what is called the Core Patrol, a dedicated team of officers assigned to the downtown. And, well, six months later, we're asking for an update. And here to provide one is the Chief of Police, Mr. Frank Bergen, who joins us on GMH. Chief Bergen, how are you? Uh, Good morning, Rick. Um, How are you doing? And and it doesn't get lost on me is that intro song was naughty and nice. And uh, here you bring me to the... uh, the stage here to talk about what we're doing and the incredible work that is both on both sides of Nadia and Nice about the amazing charity work that our members are doing, but also managing some of that challenging times that we have specifically in the core. Well, I'm sure producer Alicia, who spins the tunes on the show, has you on the nice list. But yes, we have some naughty individuals in town. But how has the core patrol dealt with that uh, that feeling of unsafety or, or unsureness in the downtown? Well, Rick, uh, you are right, and I'd be remiss if I did not thank CHML and, and your leadership on bringing Mary A. to Z from Deniger's and uh, Troy Thompson from uh, Thompson Pawn Shop to talk about what was the challenging, what had been emerging about some of the um, decay and, and uh, other issues that were occurring in the core. And we heard loud and clear um, that, in fact, from the International Village and the downtown BIA, is they wanted to see police officers. So what initially uh, was our way is we asked all our members, and this is something that we spread all across the city of Hamilton, to do park and walks, to get out of the get out of your uh, patrol vehicle and get out and shake hands and meet people and speak to the, the BIAs. So this is not just specific to the core. Um, that is something that we continue to do. As we saw also pressures coming from international challenges and global conflicts, we're seeing that more, uh, more often than not, it's, it is a wise thing to do is to spend some time in place places of worship and schools and to make sure that people are safe. So that core um, core challenge that we had and what was met ultimately by our two members that work nine to five uh, in the downtown core uh, is something that I actually think that we're going to keep sustaining and, and making sure that it's there because there is an impact and there is a uh, I guess would say an improvement on the way we are um, communicating to our downtown businesses. What kind of feedback have you received from people like Mary Otoskevich at Denninger's, like Troy Thompson at Thompson Pawn Shop? Well, let's, I'm just going to be quite clear. Is they, anybody would like to see more of us. They, they, that's one thing I'm hearing is that we may be able to be in one area of the city. Um, we actually have affected change in, in some of those areas, but that doesn't mean that we can be everywhere. Those two officers, which are Lauren Malone and Christian uh, Nicoletta, uh, they're in the area. They get to know the community. They get to know the businesses. They get to know that someone can come out and say, you know, I, my fire escape seems to be a real place 
place that people are congregating, or they may also, in some cases, say, there's someone down the alleyway that I think you need to check on. I think they're struggling. And that gives them the opportunity also to link them with our amazing city partners and our rapid intervention support team, social navigator, our, our, our ability to, da- to be able to manage homelessness, uh, the, the mental illness, and some of the addiction challenges that we're seeing all across the city. Is there any any information that during the core patrol that downtown has been safer? Are we seeing fewer instances of crime? I, I think what we're doing is we're having the conversation about it, Rick, and I'm not going to pretend that we have absolutely changed the temperature of everything, but what I, what I can say and I can highlight is that over the five days of our Grey Cup celebrations and the activities that were happening in the core, um, we heard nothing but very positive feedback of how the city um, was dealing with some of the many, many challenges. Uh, we are seeing even specifically in Gore Park is how we had to specifically manage some very difficult unhoused um, challenges and be able to then bring in back the Tree of Hope and the Ferris wheel for a a week. Um, So it's part about the communication. I would say that the communication is, in fact, um, what has been the benefit of it. We are doing detailed analysis of what's going on. Our members, uh, use of technology, are wearing a GPS monitor. So we, in fact, can track the activity and we then have the ability to correlate that with what has, you know, affected the change to your point. The one thing that I saw in the many years of policing is that we always used to think of an analytics was like we got a problem, we got to put a cop on there. What, what proactive policing and what truly should occur is that you should already be in the area that you anticipate the challenges to be. So I think that core policing initiative has done just that. We have a couple more minutes with Hamilton Police Chief Frank Bergen as we discuss the core patrol, which was instituted back in the summer and six months later is clearly having a positive impact in the downtown. And you mentioned uh, core patrol officers Malone and Nicoletta, and you mentioned it uh, continuing this program. Is there any sense that it could be expanded to more hours during the day? Uh, Rick, I, I, I'm going to have to manage what's in front of me, and that right now is challenging staffing. We um, are going to our police services board today to talk about our budget, and we'll be going in January to the city. Um, we're doing everything we can to meet the demands of our community, um, but meeting those demands means we have to expand our partnerships. We have to work with BIAs. We have to work with all communities. As you know, in staffing challenges, we had to disperse the action unit and and that was an ability to manage challenges with all our divisions, the divisions 10, 20, and 30 in our city. Uh, so we will continue this conversation. And the one thing that is positive is that the community is telling us uh, what they want, and they're they're showing us what we need to do, and, to do, and and that helps us to deal with the prevention, the risk intervention, and ultimately uh, working in partnerships to make the city safer. I'd be remiss if I did not ask you in our final minute how ride lanes are going this holiday season. Well, let's let's just go right back to that naughty and nice list. Uh, <laughs> the nice part of it is that we work with MAD, that we work with the Toronto Rock, and in past we've certainly worked with the Bulldogs. Um, I'm getting that message out, and we launched 
our program in the end of November. Um, but to date, we've had uh, 363 naughty impaired drivers. The one thing that we want to remind everybody, if you're hosting a party or if you're having a get-together, is there are so many alternatives. People should never have to uh, default to driving when they're impaired. Uh, we are finding impaired at all hours of the day. It's not traditionally going to be, you know, at 11 o'clock at night after coming out of a pub. Uh, we're getting people at all hours of the day. So we can do better. We know there are alternatives. So everybody make the right choice. Make sure that everybody has an ability to have a happy holiday, that we don't uh, create a, a vacancy at someone's Christmas table or at someone's celebration over those many religious festivities that we're all participating over this time of the year. Absolutely. Chief Bergen, thank you very much. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and we'll talk to you in the new year. Happy holidays, Rick. That is Hamilton Police Chief Frank Bergen here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Headline on 900CHML.com and globalnews.ca, Ford government quizzing cities to find out which MZOs aren't progressing. Hmm, what's going on? And, and why has Doug Ford reversed course on a deathbed promise that he made to Hazel McCallion? The evidence uh, we have seen is clear. Full dissolution would disrupt critical services and lead to higher taxes for the people of Mississauga, Brampton, and Caledon. That's the voice of Housing Minister Paul Calandra, who seems to be a busy guy these days. So, too, is Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, and joins us here on GMH. Colin, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. MZOs. Let's, uh, let's have you refresh our memory on what is an MZO and what is Minister Calandra doing? MZOs are ministers zoning orders, and and it allows Queen's Park, it's a very controversial tool, but it allows Queen's Park to basically override a municipality. So if there's a parcel of land that a developer wants to develop into a long-term care home or uh, into a business park or even into uh, affordable housing, and they're you know, struggling with getting it through city council, well, they can appeal to the province. The province can apply for an MZO, and it basically fast-tracks the project from beginning to the construction point, essentially. So these MZOs have been used by the Ford government quite frequently. They've issued about 100 of them or so since they took office in 2018. And the point of them, the government says, is to get to, um, you know, building housing a little bit faster in this province. But the housing minister started taking a look at all the MZOs they'd actually issued because it seems like nobody had actually been following up on you know the the directives that the government was was handing out and they found that some of them hadn't had any or you know little to no significant work being done on the project since the MZO was granted and and the concern is is that you know a landowner uh, does all of the approvals necessary, gets the MZO, and then sells the land for a profit because now this is shovel-ready land. And so the, the government didn't kind of want that, so they're bringing in this new use-it-or-lose-it policy. If you get an MZO from the government and there isn't significant process within some kind of a timeline, then they're going to pull the MZO from the developer. So eight of them, uh, primarily business-related uh, MZOs, have all been pulled back or they're going to be pulling them back. And there are another 14, the government says, that are now on a watch list. They're going to be carefully monitoring those. And those are related to housing. And those are related to at least one developer who, um, you know, has has had a bit of controversy around them. When it comes to the use it or lose it policy, is there a timeline in which developers have to say, okay, we are, you know, almost shovel ready or or at least moving the ball down the road? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, the government has talked about this use it or lose it policy, and we're still kind of unclear in terms of exactly what this policy means and how they're going to apply it. They, they haven't really given us what the exact timeline is uh, for an MZO to be pulled back, right? So we're looking to get that really defined criteria from the government. The other thing is um, uh, permits. A lot of municipalities will approve the permits, but sometimes the developers don't necessarily develop using those permits. And that's for a variety of reasons, right? The demand may have fallen because interest rates have risen uh, and the market has generally cooled. So developers might not necessarily want to over leverage themselves and start building now. They might just want to sit on that permit a little bit. Well, the Ford government has said, OK, if you don't use that permit, you know, we, we might have some kind of a mechanism to yank it away from you. But we haven't seen the details of that just yet. Just these kind of uh, vague threats from the Ford government without actual teeth to back them up. Colin DeMello is Queen's Park Bureau Chief at Global News, joining us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We talk about these ministers' zoning orders. We also know that the Auditor General is investigating these MZOs. Is that maybe playing a part into why many of them have not um, you know, come to be in terms of housing or other development? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, whenever the Auditor General starts an investigation, that is for a government that's now uh, been mired in scandal for a few months, it's a signal to them that maybe they need to start taking a look at these and maybe, you know, head off the Auditor General, right? If if there are any uh, weird MZOs, just start dialing them back now so that they don't have a problem when that report eventually comes out. It is anybody's guess uh, why the government is operating in the way it is. I mean, things are being pulled back so quickly that it's even difficult to understand what they're pulling back and, and, and why. Uh, but, you know, it is safe to say that what's what's really in the driver's seat for this government is the fear of being kind of wrapped in another greenbelt type of scandal. So they're just pulling everything back and they may just want to start from scratch when it comes to uh, land use and, and the building of, of homes in this province. Lastly, yesterday we heard from the government and Minister Calandra, in fact, in terms of uh, pulling back or reversing course on a promise to dissolve Peel region is this a, a prudent move, a political move, maybe a bit of both? It, it could be a little bit of both. I mean, what the government is saying is that it would be way too expensive to actually bear, right? Taxpayers would have to um, see increased costs as a result of their property taxes going up. But the assessments that they're actually basing this decision on are really unclear. The government had hired a transition team to really do the the digging and to understand and assess the finances of Branton, Caledon, and Mississauga and Peel region and understand how are we going to break up all of these assets like Peel Police, Peel Public Health, etc. Well, the transition board hadn't really done a lot of that work. They hadn't really uh, you know, reported back to the government with any kind of firm figures or data. The only data the government seemed to be relying on was that from Brampton, which seemed to indicate that property taxes would rise in all three municipalities. And Brampton had kind of made this argument to the province, if we raise taxes, we're going to do it in 2026, ahead of the provincial election, and we're going to blame you. And then on the other side, you've got Bonnie Crombie, the Mississauga mayor, who's now the Ontario Liberal leader. So Bonnie Crombie, just before she announced that she was running, they made this announcement that they were going to break up Peel and give her her own independent city. And 11 days after she was elected to the leader of the Ontario Liberals, 
they announced, yeah, we're going to pull that policy back. So is it political? Is it more of a financial calculation? I guess that's kind of up to people looking at, you know, all, all these facts to, to, to make their own determination. But ultimately, the premier is going to have to walk back uh, you know, a promise that he had made to Hazel McCallion, who had long championed for the separation of Mississauga. So this is a, a really touchy one, I can tell you, for, for the Ford government. Uh, so touchy, in fact, that the Hazel McCallion Act that they tabled earlier this year, they don't want to repeal that act. They just want to basically hollow out the act. They're going to table new legislation to essentially negate the Hazel McCallion Act they don't want to withdraw the Hazel McCallion Act because that would be a bit, I think, too much emotionally for this government to bear. It is a juicy story, and we're happy that you can share some insight into it. Thank you, Colin. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Colin DeMello is our Queen's Park Bureau Chief at Global News. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Federal government reviving the Second World War era policy that sounds saw thousands of homes built for returning war veterans and their families. Now, this obviously has a modern twist to it. Ottawa is releasing a catalog of pre-approved home designs that builders will look at, and then I guess the plan is to start building these things right away. But will this new take on an old strategy fix our country's housing crisis? I suggest it's a publicity ploy. It's something to get some publicity that they're doing something and it doesn't cost much. And they're certainly getting the publicity. (laughs) But no, it will not do very much at all. That was Frank Clayton from Toronto Metropolitan University on Good Morning Hamilton yesterday. Clearly not a big fan of this plan. Let's ask our next guest his thoughts on this. Rob Golfie is the sales representative with REMAX's Scartman Realty, the Golfie team, and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rob, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me on. All right. So wartime homes, um, I I guess at least the plan is coming back. Your thoughts? Do you think this is a good idea? I I think it's uh, I think we need to do something. Um, I don't think it's going to be the same as the post-war where they're building houses back then. Uh, People had, uh, you know, one car per household. Um, they, uh, and, 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 and less clothes people, I'm saying that people, their wardrobe wasn't as big. Mm. We need more room for, you know, like a, a living room because we've got, you know, more furniture, bigger furniture, you know, the big TVs, but I, I do think it needs to be done and, and it can be done. I mean, back in, the the time in, the, in the late forties uh, and in the fifties and sixties, uh, much of the construction was, uh, in post-war years was done by the crown corporation called Wartime Housing Canada, which later became Canada Mortgage and Housing, CMHC, as we know it today. And, uh, but uh, it, it can be done. It's just, uh, you know, the, the house that's built between 700 and 900 square feet was popular back then. Can that happen today? I think it can. We just need a little more room for uh, a driveway. And, uh, and I think people would be happy if they can afford to move into a house. It's a first step. It's their first house. Uh, you know, a lot of first-time buyers will be great. I mean, they'll they'll be appreciative and they'll enjoy that house. And that's how they build equity to go on to their second house. Yeah, I'm assuming that, you know, if this is the case, we see, I don't know, hundreds of these, even even the multi-residential kind of, um, you know, ideas that they have around these pre-approved home designs. Homeowners, I think, first-time homebuyers are going to be excited just to get in the market. What will more supply do to house prices in this city? Well, it, it, it would it would help the, uh, the the house prices, that's for sure. But I, I, it's too early 
uh, to do that. I think the house prices are going to be strong because they're not, it, it's going to take a long time before they catch up to the demand. There's going to be way more demand. And if the government gets involved and says, hey, uh, maybe you qualify for this and try to keep the house prices down, but it's going to take a long time. Those those war, wartime houses that we call it, whatever they're going to call it today, uh, the strawberry box homes, they're going to go up in price quite a bit just because there's there's more buyers than they uh, than they can handle. And uh, it, the prices of those will go up at, uh, quite a bit because there's going to be a huge demand. Rob Golfie is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rob is a sales representative. Remax Escarpment Realty, the Golfie team, joining us here on GMH. We know that Hamilton doesn't want to expand its urban boundary. They made that quite clear in its battle with the provincial government. Infill is the plan, looking at those vacant lots in the city. You know this city like the back of your hand. Will these pre-approved home designs fit into these spaces? Well, you probably could fit uh, maybe two or three in, in these spaces, but there's only so much you can build on infill. I mean, they're building a lot of high-rise condos. Not everybody wants to live in a in a high-rise condo. People mm-hmm. want a little backyard, you know, pull up to their house and walk into the front door without having to go underground or, or around the block to uh, park their car and then go up an elevator. Like, people just want a house to go into. And uh, the infills, I mean, you know, they probably can stack these war wartime house styles or what they call strawberry box homes on top of each other. Maybe have, you know, a duplex kind of set up uh, uh, on these infills. But um, but yeah, I mean, uh, there there is a lot of infill there, but it, it's it's hard to tell. People want to live in the uh, outside the area, outside of the downtown core. And uh, they want they just want to raise a family in a nice little residential neighborhood. I know you talk to a lot of developers in and around the area. Do you think they're going to want to build these because they're looking at return on investment and, and maybe the return will be good. But do you get the sense that developers are excited about this? I don't think they are. You know what? Um, they could fit more probably building townhouses, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it, and that's what they're doing. They're they could put more uh, townhouses on a on a square acre than uh, than putting uh, I don't know these uh, you know strawberry box homes. It's uh, so I think I think it's going to be tough I, unless the Crown Corporation gets involved and uh, they buy the land and uh, they say here's what we need to do and and they do it. From a uh, Hamilton Burlington Niagara housing perspective overall, as we approach uh, Christmas, how is the market right now? The market is uh, moving if it's the house is priced right. Um, but I do feel that if you're planning on putting your house up for sale to buy, I would probably uh, in in the new towards the end of January, first of February is probably a good time to get your house ready to go on the market. If you're a buyer looking to buy a house, right now is a good time. There's a lot of inventory out there. People need to sell a lot of homes out there that have been waiting to sell. Uh, you can make some good deals out there right now. So before that market starts picking up in uh, in February, March. You can hear more from Rob on the Golfie Real Estate Show, Saturdays at 9, right here on 900 CHML. Rob, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Rob Golfie, sales representative, Remax Escarpment Realty, the Golfie team, online at robgolfie.com. That's Rob, G-O-L-F-I.com. I know, I sound like the commercial now. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a new survey out by the Real Estate and Mortgage Institute of Canada. It's really interesting. It ranked mortgage brokers dead last when asked who would they most like to take advice from? So they ask Canadians, 
who would you most like to take advice from? And mortgage brokers were ranked behind parents. You know, that's understandable. Banks? Eh. Politicians? Bitcoin millionaires? Even Hollywood actor Ryan Reynolds? What? Brian Hogman is a principal broker and founder of Mission 35 Mortgages and the author of How to Get Mortgage-Free Really Effing Fast, the book on how to pay off your mortgage in Canada with 10 simple steps. Brian, good morning. How are you? Well, you know what? I'm doing pretty good, and I'm, I'm excited to talk about this interesting survey that you found, Rick. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, mortgage brokers are behind parents, banks, financial advisors, Ryan Reynolds, politicians, Bitcoin millionaires, financial influencers, and real estate agents in terms of who Canadians would most likely to take advice from. That's got to hurt. Yeah, a little bit. It's a bit sobering at this Christmas season to uh, hear that. You know, the only one I could really understand is Ryan Reynolds because yeah. he is a handsome devil, right? <laughs> but uh, I, it, it's quite shocking, to be honest, because, you know what, the mortgage broker market share really started to grow. But to read that survey, it shows that we have a lot of work to do when it comes down to education and, and the actual perception as to what we do. It's quite shocking. Yeah, the misconception is really encapsulated nicely in this survey because it shows that 55% of Canadians mistakenly believe that mortgage brokers are paid by the homeowner or the realtor. That's not the case. How does it work? Yeah, it's a great question, Rick. And it's uh, I'm surprised that perception's still there. So when we do a mortgage, I would say 80 to 85% of the time, we are actually paid by the financial institution to do the mortgage. So if we place the mortgage to a bank or a TD bank or a credit union, they will actually pay a commission to the mortgage agent to send them the business. And that in no way, shape or form comes out of the client's pocket. If there ever is a fee, and I think this is where the miscommunication comes from, there's that old adage that you pay a mortgage broker quite a bit of money. In some cases, the rare 10% of time, if there's a very, very difficult situation uh, where credit is an issue or it's hard to place, there may be a fee, but it should be disclosed right at the beginning of the conversation, right up front, because a really good mortgage agent or broker will know if it's a situation that would warrant a fee or go to a lender that does not pay a commission, they would charge for their services. That should be disclosed right at the beginning. So the consumer, the Canadian, they end up knowing exactly what they're going to pay right up front. Another interesting finding in this survey shows that 21% of those asked say they, uh, mortgage brokers don't know me like the bank does. And another 24% say they only care about making money from the banks. And 22% say banks can arrange mortgages quicker. Do you want to dispel any and all of those myths? Yes, I would. Thank you, Rick. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> if we have another 20 minutes, I'll yes. go through in great detail with you. Okay. <laughs> but uh, you know what? No, number one, I used to work for a bank and the banks are a great, uh, great education, great learning ground, but the banks have one product, right? So if I work for bank A, I can only sell bank A products. So I only have one rate, one set of products to do. When you work with a mortgage broker, mortgage broker can have access to 25, 30 different lenders in order to look at different options. So the other thing too, that's a big misconception is sometimes when the bank says no, you think there's no other options. When you go to a mortgage agent or mortgage broker, they have what we would call kind of like an A lender, a B lender, a C lender. If you don't fit on the A side, then you try a lender that might be marginally more expensive with looser requirements. 
The other thing too, is when it comes down to timeframes, I would wager that because mortgage agents and brokers do work on a commission, they are highly incentivized to get that done as quickly as possible. Whereas in the bank, a lot of bankers may work from nine to five and nothing wrong with that. But uh, if it's not done by five o'clock, you're waiting till nine in the morning the next day. With a mortgage agent or broker, they're going to do everything they can probably around the clock to ensure that it gets done. So my perception of it, from what I see in the business, it would get done quite quicker for a, a mortgage agent or mortgage broker if you were to hire them to do the job. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Brian Hogman, principal broker and founder, Mission 35 Mortgages, author of How to Get Mortgage Free Really Effing Fast. We're talking about a survey by the Real Estate and Mortgage Institute of Canada that ranked mortgage brokers last when it comes to Canadians on who they would most like to take advice from, which is extremely surprising. But still, the survey has some other interesting uh, figures and data to go about, including 32.6% of homeowners who worked with a bank said that they were happy with the rate, which means, you know, 68% were unhappy with it. But to that point, too, 31% believe the bank did everything they could to get buyers or homebuyers the best deal. And 62% would recommend a bank to friends or family who need a new mortgage versus only 38% who would recommend a mortgage broker. Do do you think it's maybe a case of not many Canadians have worked with a mortgage broker? I think the market share is increasing. We saw that quite a bit because the market share is getting closer to 50%. um, But I do believe the other 50% correct. It all depends on where they got these survey results from. But yes, I would say so because... The number one thing on renewals, which we see is for anybody with a bank, the renewal form that you get from a bank is typically one of the highest rates that you could renew at because it is what the banks refer to as low hanging fruit, which I hate that because what they're doing is just hoping that you renew. And I think maybe this perception might come from if the bank sent you a renewal rate of 6% and you said, oh, can you do any cheaper? And they come back and say 5.9, someone may feel like they won the lottery. But in reality, if you actually went to a mortgage agent, mortgage broker, you might something you might find something that's a quarter point or even a half a point cheaper. So it's really, really important, especially in these you know these days, for people to shop, ask more questions, ask multiple people. When you talk to a mortgage agent or broker, there's absolutely no cost to get someone's opinion, no cost whatsoever. So if you get a renewal form or if you have a rate. I highly encourage people to get a second opinion on it. In our last uh, 60 seconds together, where are rates going right now? They are going down. It's going to be a white Christmas. Uh, No, but uh, (laughs) in all sincerity, Rick, uh, we saw the rates pause last Bank of Canada meeting. We saw the federal government actually pause rates as well, too, just the other day, which is amazing. So next Bank of Canada meeting is January 26th. Highly anticipated. We'll still see a pause. Definitely not go up in the new year. But very, very high probability that we'll see a drop, not a huge one. It's not going to be going down to 1%, but that we'll see a quarter point drop, typically maybe in the March or April Bank of Canada meeting, if all things continue on the trajectory that they are. So uh, to me, that's good news for the new year and good news for people that have been uh, riding out a variable rate mortgage right now. Absolutely. Brian, appreciate the time. Have a very Merry Christmas and we'll talk to you in the new year. Thanks, Ricky, too. Brian Hogman, principal broker and founder of Mission 35 Mortgages, online mission35.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Canada's Minister of Sports has announced the creation of a national commission to examine abuse and maltreatment in sport. This is going to be an 18-month-long process that's going to investigate 
how to make sports safer for kids as well as elite athletes and better protect those who do share allegations of abuse and wrongdoing. Here to talk about it is Canada's Sport Minister, Carla Qualtrough, also the Liberal MP for Delta, B.C. Minister Qualtrough, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Thanks for having me. First and foremost, I've, I've read a lot about this. Of course, we had the, the Hockey Canada scandal not that long ago, and a lot of people were calling for a public inquiry at that time. So why a commission and not an inquiry? Really good question. So first of all, um, one of the the places I started from on this is having listened to athlete survivors is wanting to make sure that this process was trauma informed, that we didn't re-victimize athletes, that there wasn't an opportunity to cross-examine and kind of challenge the harm almost that they say had they, they had experienced. We really wanted to put a victim-centered focus on this process. Um, and a public inquiry is very, it's very legalistic. It's very litigious. There's a right to cross-examine people. There's a right to compel people to testify. Um, and that's the complete opposite of trauma-informed. So where we ended up, Rick, was on a, pro, um, a, we're modeling after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Again, a process where there is a vulnerable population who was harmed and a system that didn't um, protect them. And that's what we're dealing with here. So, um, we're really focused on making sure that we're protecting victims and not re-traumatizing people. I would hope, though, once this commission is done and, and is heard from the people it wants to hear from and is offering recommendations or reports, that most of what is offered at the end of the day is accepted or implemented because you mentioned the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Not many of those recommendations yeah. have been adopted. Yeah, I hear you, and I'm very committed to... I mean, this is this is my world. I come from sport. I, I am a Paralympic athlete. I had experienced exclusion in sport as a kid who was blind. Um, I'm very um, committed to making sure that what is recommended, we act upon and we do so very, very quickly because this system can't afford to wait. There, there's too much good going on in sport um, to not figure out how to make sure everybody benefits from that. So what do you want to see come out of this commission? What is What is it mandated to do? So the commission will have two, uh, we're asking them to make two rec recommendations in two areas. So the first area is very safe sport specific. So looking at what we do in sport in this country, how do we make it more safer, um, specifically around athlete disclosure, around safety and security, safeguarding our kids, um, making sure that policies um, are in place and practices and avoiding the conflicts of interest that sometimes occur and the power imbalances. Um, but then more broadly, because safe sport is like permeates every aspect of the sport ecosystem, really digging in on how can we just make our system better. Um, and for me, that second one will hopefully lead to the culture change that I actually think is at the root of all of this. Carla Qualtrough is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ms. Qualtrough is the Minister of Sport here in Canada, also the Liberal MP for Delta, B.C. And we're talking about a national commission that's going to examine abuse and maltreatment in sport. When does this begin? And I'm also hearing that there's going to be a registry of offenders as part of this. Can you explain? Yeah, so um, we launched the kind of the structure this week. Early January, we'll be appointing the commission, which is three people, one who's independent from sport, legal expert, um, one with an expertise in victim rights and trauma-informed processes, one with experience and expertise in sport. Um, they've got their 18 months, as you said. They'll produce a final report. In terms of the registry, the registry is a separate um, 
separate thing that, sorry, I can't think of the word. There's this, it's separate from this in the sense it's actually going to be launched in March of next year. So it's not waiting until the results of the commission. Um, it's through the Office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner. And it's basically all national sport organizations um, have signed on to this, this, this um, universal code of misconduct for sport. Anyone who's sanctioned under that code will be in this registry as of March. A lot of this, and we got a couple of minutes to chew on this, a lot of this will have to change the culture in yeah. locker rooms or certain sports, which is going to be difficult to do because that culture has been around for a while. Is that going to be the hardest thing to change? Absolutely. And that's what we need all Canadians to help us with, right? Because this is, oh my goodness, like we're not we're not talking only about the very egregious types of abuse that make the headlines. We're talking about the normalized behavior that happens every day in sport. Think of fans yelling at kids from the stands. Think of people jeering at officials. Think of the teasing, the mockery, the intimidation that like these things that just happen and they get close to a line or they cross a line um and they're just they create this toxic culture you know there's a lot of discrimination in sport homophobia transphobia um sexism misogyny there's just you know and and we need parents and uh, you know volunteers we just need everybody to get on board and say this is unacceptable you know we wouldn't let this doesn't happen in other sectors like you don't you don't go into your kid's classroom and start yelling at another kid because they got the A and your kid didn't get the A, right? Like, it's just it's just so incredible how this has been normalized in this system. And all of us have a responsibility to decide enough is enough. Well, this examination and future changes are very much needed. Can't wait to see them. Minister Qualtro, appreciate the time and good luck with this. My pleasure, and have yourself a good holiday season. You too. That's Carla Qualtro, the Minister of Sport in this country, Liberal MP for Delta, B.C., and she's right. Like Changes need to be made, and she, you know the analogy, the analogy that she made in the classroom is 100% spot on. But when we get to the soccer pitch or the baseball diamond or the hockey rink, I don't know. We lose our minds. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Down south we go, and the U.S. Supreme Court is being asked to make a decision on whether former President Donald Trump can be criminally prosecuted on federal charges over his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Now, some believe it could upend hundreds of charges stemming from the Capitol riot, including those against Mr. Trump. Brian Karam is a CNN political analyst, senior White House correspondent for Playboy and host of Just Ask the Question podcast and joins us on GMH. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you? Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. Never a dull moment in America, that's for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess that's one way to look at it. <laughs> now, uh, I know that Trump's team is fearful that any delay in his upcoming trial, which I believe begins in March, is really going to hamper his re-election campaign. Is that the crux of this? Well, um, he wants to delay it as much as possible until after the election. So if he's re-elected, that even if he's convicted of, of federal charges, he can pardon himself, or at least he seems to think he can pardon himself. So um, th they're looking for any delay possible. This this actually, it, this affects, there are four charges that he faces. Um, one of them is a, for the obstruction, and so they're asking whether or not this he has immunity from it. And so it, it could, it could in a way, it could upend one of the charges or, and it's perhaps a second charge 
the conspiracy to uh, uh, or the intent to commit obstruction. Those two charges of the four that he faces in D.C. could it could delay uh, a, a trial on those two specifically, or it could delay the entire March uh, trial, March fourth trial. But he's still facing ninety-one felony charges in four different jurisdictions. He's not Neo in the Matrix. He's not going to dodge all these bullets. <laughs> At the end of the day, he's going to go down. When it comes to the immunity factor, where are we with that? And what are your thoughts on it? Well, it's it's before the U.S. Supreme Court. And um, that's uh, and now he's been all right. Part There are two things the Supreme Court is, is hearing, whether or not he can be charged for these two charges out of the four and immunity. Is, does he have immunity? as uh, a former president. And that is probably the most significant thing to be looked at. And it was Jack Smith who brought it before the U.S. Supreme Court and kind of short-circuited the entire process because Donald Trump would have appealed it anyway. But in in making the U.S. Supreme Court look at it now, uh, Jack Smith is in effect short-circuiting that long process to try and uh, keep from derailing the March 4th trial. And so that's the big umbrella over everything. If the U.S. Supreme Court rules that Donald Trump doesn't have unlimited immunity, then he's really in trouble. And to be honest with you, it's, it, it, it might be a very nuanced decision, but it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. Supreme Court to give this guy full-fledged immunity. A, they don't want a an imperial presidency. B, they don't want to give this kind of power to <laughs> to Joe Biden either, because at the end of the day, if they give it to Donald Trump, then it, it's given to Joe Biden. Joe Biden is still in office. And he, at that point in time, could say, you know what? You're right. We do have immunity. I'm not going to stand for reelection. I'm staying. And that would be a disaster for the United States. So the Supreme Court has some very serious things to be looking at. And it doesn't it doesn't bode well for for Donald Trump. We got about 30 seconds. When does the Supreme Court make this decision? Well, the the immunity decision has been asked for immediately. So hopefully before the end of the year, but definitely before the March 4th trial. So uh, look for Donald Trump to get a lump of coal in his stocking for Christmas. (laughs) And probably rightfully so. Brian, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your time this morning. You too. Have fun. Brian Karam is the host of Just Ask the Question podcast, CNN political analyst and senior White House correspondent for Playboy, offering his thoughts on this guy. I'm so indicted, and I just can't hide it. I'm about to go to jail, and I don't like it. I'm so indicted, and I just can't hide it. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I I am so screwed. At least you'll have his lump of coal. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.